Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. What? Oh my goodness. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. This is the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. So, Lauren, what's on deck for us today in Journal Club? Today we're talking about groundbreaking research that could represent an important new treatment and a possible cure for type 1 diabetes. So what's the key breakthrough? Well, there are actually two. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease where the immune system attacks and destroys the beta cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. Without insulin, your cells can't absorb glucose from your bloodstream. The first breakthrough by the authors was to devise a way to generate not just the functional beta cells, but their whole cellular complex called the islet in the lab, which could then be transplanted into a diabetic. And this is where the second breakthrough comes in, because since this is a chronic autoimmune disease, if you just transplant these islets in, they'll get destroyed. But the authors found a way to shield these lab-grown islets from the immune system so that they could persist and regulate glucose levels. That's incredible. How exactly did they do that? You'll have to listen to the episode to find out, but I'll give you a hint that it came from studying cancer. I'm so excited to have the senior author, Ron Evans of the Salk Institute, here to discuss this research with me. And he leads off with discussing the differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. There are two types of diabetes, and the most common is type 2 diabetes. It is typically linked to high-fat diets, in obesity. And because we're in an obesity epidemic, hundreds of millions of people are becoming diabetic, pre-diabetic, and having all the complications linked to that, which are vascular problems, heart disease, liver disease, organ failure, blindness, amputation, and it also is a major risk factor for cancer. But for type 1, this is a very different disease. It's not about weight gain. It is an immunologic problem. Mostly the immune system that keeps your body free of invasion from bacteria or anything that's foreign that gets into your bloodstream. But in some people, you get autoimmunity where the immune system starts to attack your own body. In the case of type 1 diabetes, it attacks something called the beta cell. And so if the beta cell is attacked, that means that you have a defect in insulin production. And the beta cell is a specialized cell In the pancreas, it's part of a complicated structure called pancreatic islets. And these cell clusters basically uh, have multiple cell types that produce core molecules and glucose control. And those are insulin, glucagon, somatostatin, and then 
of a number of different related peptides. So there are two main forms of diabetes. There's type 1, which is this autoimmune disease, and type 2, which is something that has a genetic component but is also really related to environmental effects like diet and exercise. And what they have in common is that they're both metabolic diseases. They both have dysregulation in glucose homeostasis. So how your body senses and responds to glucose, which is related to the hormone insulin. And your work in this particular paper is focused on type 1 diabetes, which is characterized by the loss of beta cells. One of the maybe ideal treatments would be to replace these islets that are lost due to autoimmune response. So how have people tried to do that in the past and what problems have they faced? So one of the main hope of stem cell biology from the beginning was to rescue type 1 diabetes. It's, that seemed like the low-hanging fruit. And it turned out to be super difficult because even if you make a human functional islet in a dish, if you put it in any organism, it'll be rejected that day. Because the immune system attacks the beta cell, if you try to replace beta cells, the immune system's still there and it will take it out. And so it's like permanent problem. And you can't just put new beta cells back into the body. So kids today, type 1 diabetics, can get transplants from cadavers called cadaveric islets. But you have to be on immunosuppressive drugs the entire time. And that by itself is a complication. Particularly in kids, it makes you exposed to different types of infections. And there's a lot of challenges there. Right. The result of the disease is the loss of the islets, loss of the beta cells. And so just replacing that sounds like it would work, but that's ignoring the fact that this is an autoimmune disease that is continuous. And even though you'd had these great advances of now being able to make stem cells that you've differentiated now into glucose-sensitive beta cells that actually, when they saw glucose, secreted insulin, just like the normal cells in your body do, just putting them back into a type 1 diabetic patient wasn't going to work. So now that we have all that background, let's talk about the approach you took to getting these functional beta cells into patients or into a mouse model. Yeah, right, yeah, our volunteer mice. Yes. Um, after making these functional beta cells, which was a big advance, we took them out of the dish and we put them in a bottle that contained this type of seaweed type gelatinous media, but enough that you could have it swirl around at a slow speed with a magnetic little twirler. So our goal was producing a pure beta cell because we're, that's the missing component. But what we got out was something even better that was unexpected science, which is a synthetic islet. In that suspended form, these beta cells and these cell clusters then became alpha cells and delta cells, and they created an islet. And that tells you that the structure and the nature of the islet is built into the way in which the beta cell is formed. And then it can differentiate into these different cell types making different hormones that are known naturally to complement insulin. And you create a physical interaction between these three cell types. That now gets you very close to the actual natural islets that you have in your body. We call the islets, by the way, human islet-like organoids or hylos. So you were in this lab system and you were just trying to make beta cells. And what you found was that 
it wasn't a homogeneous population of beta cells you were creating. You were actually creating a mix of all of the cells that you would find in the entire islet, which indicates that there's like an intrinsic islet developmental program that you had kind of serendipitously stumbled upon. So is the whole islet, is that easier to transplant into a patient than a beta cells on their own? That's a great question. And the answer is yes. So cells like to be grouped up like a close family or something, probably because they're physically communicating. And so it was a bit of luck, but also probably a reflection of nature that by making one of these cell types, in our case, the beta cell, that intrinsically it on its own when suspended in this, this three-dimensional substrate gave rise to alpha cells and delta cells. And so that, that was a gift, basically, that we weren't planning, but that we got. And so that helped things along quite a bit. But still, it means that these are cells that haven't been in any organism previously. And so they're not compatible with, with anybody, basically. So how did you overcome this? How did you protect these, the beta cells in these islets that you created from this problematic immune response? A concurrent thing that my lab has been studying is the nature of immunologic resistance that happens in certain cancers. In our particular case, pancreatic cancers. It is one of the most deadliest cancers. And one of the reasons for that is that the cancer creates an immune shield around it. Think of it like a Harry Potter invisibility shield, where you activate this shield and it kind of covers the tumor. And the immune system knows it's there. They come in, but they stop. And they just don't know where to go because they can't actually see it. And the immune system cannot take it out. So for many other cancers, immunotherapy is a real option, but it's zero in pancreatic cancer. In fact, it makes things worse, typically. Is it like a protein shield or is it glycans or lipids? We're trying to actually learn the details of the shield, but it's at least a half a dozen, if not 40 or 50 different components to it. And so case of cancer, we're trying to get rid of the shield. In the case of the islets, we're trying to activate the shield and create a shield around these synthetic islets. So what we did is we figured out a way, since we knew the science of the shield, why don't we actually just reverse it and just activate it in these hyalos? And that actually worked surprisingly well. And so we knew it was there. We just put it in, into mice, a diabetic rodent in this case. And something that we have never, ever seen before is that on the day of injection, introduction into the body, the glucose normalized. It just went boom, and it doesn't get lower than normal. It stays right at normal. And then it kind of flatlined for a long time, just kept normal, 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 one week, two weeks, a month, two months, three months. So we were excited about that result because Basically, this then represents a type of major step forward because if you can control the rejection question, that is the challenge of overcoming the immune response, then you have the potential to think of a new way of potentially curing diabetes and type 1 diabetes because you're creating the human islet in a dish, turning the function on, 
with a specific program that we activate and then turning on the immune shield. And so that's all in place in these cells and then proving that even in a foreign species, you get a beautiful effect. And so that was the core of what the shield allowed us to do. And there's a ton of science around it, but the simple thing is that it worked. I think that's so incredible. The pancreatic cancer cells use the shield to prevent the immune system from recognizing them as cancer cells and destroying them. And it's amazing that you can then turn on that same system to protect these islet cells from the aberrant immune system. That is just such a clever hack of using kind of what has gone wrong to now have this beneficial impact on you know, something that could eventually be a therapy. So one question I had for you from how you did this study was I noticed you at first did a genetic manipulation to turn the shield on, but then you also did a treatment where you were exposing the cells to other signals to get the cells to turn on the, the shield in a non-genetic treatment. So I'm curious why you chose to go with the non-genetic treatment as opposed to why not just use the genome hack? For creating cells for transplantation, what is of concern to the FDA is when you start doing genomic manipulation, that you now are increasing the risk for getting additional mutations in that process. And there's a worry that that's going to create increased risk for tumors or something to go wrong. So knowing that the FDA frowns on genetically engineered cells, we decided to try to use our understanding of the programs and the knowledge that the program itself has an on-off switch, besides it being an on-off switch. And so we went back and did another screen looking for secreted factors, sometimes called cytokines or growth factors. And we were able to identify some factors that literally we could buy and put those onto these cells. And by doing so, turn on the program using these factors that never get in the cell. So it's using something at the surface of the cell that recognizes that factor to activate the genomic program. That makes a lot of sense. Given that the FDA will have a higher level of scrutiny on cells that have been gene edited, as opposed to using the natural signals that the body already uses to turn on this protective shield, Recapitulating that is an arguably better way to manipulate these cells so that you get the right properties that can be injected into a patient and that kind of lowers the regulatory scrutiny on these as a potential treatment. Yes, that's true. The other advantage of creating factors that could just induce the program is that then you can use this potentially for other types of stem cell technology without having to genetically engineer, it might have much wider application. So we're, make, we're making the model for that right now in our human beta cells by both creating the on-off switch for activating them and also creating an inducible immune shield. And we're also putting additional controls into that. So if we wanted to eliminate the cells for any reason, we've designed it so you can take a single pill that's very safe and they're gone in a day. And so it's all about safety and efficiency. Now that we've discussed how you created these islet-like organoids, how you're able to shield them from the immune system, and how you transplanted them into diabetic mice, and they were able to restore the glucose homeostasis, 
let's zoom out and talk about kind of some of the bigger implications and next steps. So how do you take this amazing proof of concept that you did in the lab and move it into the clinic? Well, beginning to take these from the lab and into the clinic is a significant challenge. So you have to look at scale up. A mouse weighs about 30 or 40 grams and, you know, humans are basically 80, 90 kilograms and therefore the number of eyelets you need are proportionally much higher. And sometimes things work at tiny scales like you do in the lab, but scaling up and mass production can be more challenging. Still, we find that our technology is robust. We can make many millions of these uh, islets at a time. But the real job for scale ultimately is going to be probably in a, a company that specializes in scaling up stem cell protocols. The next steps, it's a little bit of a debate what the next steps should be, but we have been working for other reasons with the diabetic non-human primates. So it's one thing to work with mice, but primates get diabetes basically in the same way as people. And if it works in a mouse, you have 50% of a chance it's going to work in people. If it works in a monkey, it's 100%. There's some thought of maybe going to our diabetic primate colony and seeing if we can get long-term survival there. That is something that we can actually do out of our lab because we can probably make enough to give to the primates. Um, On the other hand, the clinicians that I've talked to, some of our collaborators, feel that If you can make enough for a monkey, they would be willing to go to the FDA and say, these are human cells from an FDA-approved embryonic stem cell that is approved ultimately for going into people. And since they're immune shielded and they have these protection devices and they have a kill switch, they would consider going into people because they don't see what the downside is. So that's being aggressive. But when you're dealing with a very tough disease that has really challenging therapies and cadaverics are limited and the FBN immunosuppressives, they're eager to explore this. In your article, you measured the ability of these transplanted organoids out to 60 days and they were able to maintain glucose homeostasis through then. But in the most perfect scenario, this would be a one and done treatment. You know, you get this infusion of islets and they would restore glucose homeostasis you know, for the rest of the patient's life. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that's something that can be engineered or do you think that repeated treatments are always going to be necessary? Well, the reality is there's no precedent yet for that. The longest transplants using cadaveric islets have been about five years. They all eventually disappear. It's thought because even though people are on immunosuppressive drugs, eventually the immune system gets to them. We don't know about the cells that we have because they're not the same as cadaveric islets, number one. And number two, the cadaverics don't have the shield. They don't have any shield. You're trying to neutralize it at the level of the whole body. And so I think that ours could actually be significantly better. Now, does that mean that we can get them to be a cure? I think that at least you have to consider that that's the potential. Does this work have any implications or open up any opportunities outside of diabetes? Is there anything that you've learned in this project that could be applied to other disease settings, other therapeutics, anything of that nature? I think there are a lot of implications in the work that we've done for stem cell technology. And in general, for the immune shield, I think it's very important. Uh, Most people, almost all the science has been trying to, to break down the immune shield 
for new types of therapy. We're the only ones who are trying to actually turn it on. But I think in doing that, the first time of actually showing that that can be a therapeutic benefit, it opens up new territory. This is the, the reality in most types of disease mechanisms in the body, which is healthy systems basically have rhythm. They have on-off states. They, things come on, they go off. In disease mechanisms, they usually get stuck in either the on state or the off state. And the body doesn't know how to get over that. And oftentimes we find once you get it going again, it starts working. It's just stuck. I think that through that kind of logic, this technology is going to open up some territories for hopefully other types of applications. And knowing the field that I'm in, those will come pretty quickly from multiple labs because if there is a way to do something, people will do it quickly. It's exciting. Exciting time. Thank you so much for being on Journal Club this week. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.